Christ is risen. Good morning, everyone. Uh, for this week, week's devotion sheet, the catechism section for the week is the third petition. Um, in this petition, I think, uh, Luther especially, all the way through these first three petitions, uh, that are always talking about how, in, in Luther's explanation, how these things are done even without our prayer. Um, so in the hallowed be thy name and thy kingdom come, both of them, God's name is kept holy by itself even without our prayer, and God's kingdom comes without our prayer, and here the will of God is done without our prayer. What I think Luther is, is teaching us here is, is that the, the section on earth as it is in heaven in the prayer really refers to each of these first three petitions. So thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The on earth as it is in heaven is what Luther's getting at when he says this is done without our prayer. God's will and God's kingdom and his will are, they are done because he's God, right? What, when we pray thy will be done, what we're praying for is that it would be done on earth. That is among us, right? And, and so among us, and then he, he combines these two when he says God's will is done, when he breaks and defeats the very evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, no sinful flesh. They don't want us to hallow God's name. Those are God's enemies. They want to not hallow God's name or let his kingdom come or let his will be done. So the enemy, the devil, the world, and our flesh are against all three of these things. So they will be done. God's kingdom will come and, and his name will be hallowed. But the devil doesn't want that. And the world doesn't want that. And so we pray in these petitions. And then he also... Just marvelous. Um, just enjoy that for the rest of your life as you as you continue to, to know the catechism. How, how delightful this description of what God gives, what is in this. God's will is done uh, when he breaks and hinders these. And then when, it was, when he strengthens and keeps us firm in his word and faith until we die. Who is it that keeps us in faith? He does. He strengthens us. That's his good and gracious will. How do you know if his will is being done? If we're kept in firm in his word and faith until we die. You want to know what God's will is? That's it. <laughs> All, right. All right, let's uh, let's read through this. The third petition. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does this mean? The good and gracious will of God is done even without our prayer. But we pray in this petition that it may be done among us also. How is God's will done? God's will is done when he breaks and hinders every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature, which do not want us to hallow God's name or let his kingdom come. And when he strengthens and keeps us firm in his word and faith until we die. This is his good and gracious will. It, just wonderful words to know and to... Have on, have on your lips and hearts. The hymn this week, because this week uh, includes the 40th day after Easter, namely Ascension. And so the hymn this week is the Ascension hymn, a hymn of glory, let us sing. Uh, interesting thing, the guy who writes this hymn, I think it's the only hymn that we have of his, um, is by this guy named the Venerable Bede. His name is Bede, but he's like, he's got this nickname, this moniker, the Venerable, uh, which... I don't know of anyone else who has that. Like that's 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 what he's called. He's the venerable bead or the bead the venerable. 
or, or just beat, I guess. Um, he's known, uh, so he's in the 7th, 8th century. Um, a, a monk in England, Christian monk in, in England, um, uh, Northumbria was the, the territory. So northern England, uh, Scotland area. And he's known for writing, uh, he writes an ecclesiastical history of the English people. Most of what we know about early English history um, comes from Bede, uh, which is, it's surprising to find out some of the work that he did. He was, so he's known for this, this history work, but he did all kinds of other writings, writings and commentaries on the scriptures, translating works into English, which not in English that you would recognize. What Bede is writing is very early English. You would not recognize it. Um, and you wouldn't be able to read it. But it is English. It's the language of the, of the Angles. Um, but what we know about English history, early English history, mainly comes from, from his work. But he does all kinds of other things, uh, including like translating the Bible. So we make a kind of a big deal of Luther translating the Bible as if into German, as if that's the first time anyone had ever translated the scriptures into their own language. And uh, Bede was actually working, I think when he died, was actually working on partly a translation of the Bible into the English of his day. Um, interesting story about his dying. So Thursday, May 26th, you could argue that it was actually May 25th. So it is the, the, the Tuesday of that week after Rogate Sunday, that he is, um, I was just reading the, on Tuesday, two days before he died, his breathing became worse and his feet swelled. He continued to dictate to a scribe, however, and despite spending the night awake in prayer, he dictated again the following day, so then on, on Wednesday. At three o'clock on Wednesday, according to Cuthbert, who writes this account, he asked for a box of his to be brought and distributed among the priests of the monastery, a few treasures of his. This is what he's going to give away. He's going to give away some of his, some of his things because he knows what's coming. Uh, some pepper and napkins and some incense. That night, that's all he's got. Uh, that night he dictated a final sentence to the scribe. There's a poem that's referred to uh, as the, I forget what it's called, but it's like a little, little short little dying verse that's ascribed to him. Um, Final, just dictated a final sentence to the scribe, a boy named Wilbert, and died soon afterwards. The account of Cuthbert doesn't make entirely clear whether he died before midnight or after. Uh, but it was in the evening, and it was after sunset for sure. And so, like, according to their calculation of times, like, like in the Bible, the new day starts at sundown, at sunset. And so this would have been reckoned as Thursday rather than, than on Wednesday. And it was it was Ascension Day that he that he uh, died there, which is kind of neat because with this uh, marvelous marvelous Ascension Hymn, which isn't that complicated, the hymn itself um, it just tells the story kind of of the of the Ascension. It's a fairly simple. The other Ascension hymns that we have much more get into the theology and the the significance of. Since Jesus ascended, what is true for us? What did he do for us by ascending into heaven? And it's, it's significant. But great, uh, great hymn. Interesting story with Bede, Venerable Bede. So I mentioned today's Rogate Sunday. I've told you, talked about this before, but I just wanted to show this. You'll see an insert in, your, in the ordo today, that, and you can take those with you if you want to. Uh, 
the Rogation Day, so Rogate Sunday is this Sunday, based on the, a word from Jesus uh, in the Gospel. But the, the custom was during these days of basically blessing the fields, uh, that they would go out and it goes back, I didn't realize, and I'll, I'll share, I'll share a section of Luther uh, talking about these processions that they would go and, and do, and they would uh, go out into the fields uh, and, and ask the Lord's blessings on the, the fields on this Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of the week before Ascension. Uh, just other ways that that looked in different places. But what I found was really interesting uh, in, in Luther. So he goes, and, and this is in 1519, so pretty early, uh, he writes this little work on rogation type prayer and procession. So this was a, a thing that people did, although there were plenty of abuses that had been associated with it. So Luther writes this to say, okay, if you're, what is proper prayer? And he goes kind of point by point, um, you know, what, what makes for good, good prayer? Um, it's necessary that we never doubt the promise of, of, of God. Uh, if you're praying while doubting God's fulfillment, he prays without interest. Uh, he goes through several points. Um, don't tell God what to do. You, know, you don't set a time or specify the way or means of his fulfillment. Um, he, we need to conduct ourselves properly in rogation week and all the processions and litanies. So people would go out on these processions, but sometimes they would stop at the taverns along the way. It was like prayer procession slash bar hopping, kind of. Um, it, was, it was not... You know, the processions have been become scandalously misused. People want only to see and be seen in them. They indulge in inane babble and hilarity to say nothing of even worse conduct and sin. The village processions have become especially disgraceful. They give themselves to themselves to carousing in taverns. They handle the processional crosses and, and banners in such a manner that it would not be surprising if God should let all, us all perish in one year. So, you know, don't, don't be naughty. Um, he says, okay, what are we going to pray for during procession and rogation week? That God may graciously protect the crops in the field and cleanse the air. Uh, not only that God may send blessed rain and good weather to ripen the fruit, but that the fruit may not be poisoned uh, and we would die. The final one, though, point eight, I think is very interesting. He says, eight, we should ask God to bless the creatures for us, not merely in the interest of our bodies, as we just heard, but even more for the benefit of our souls. Lest the poor soul also be stricken with pestilence and other plagues. So we would pray that God would not send us a plague or disease or famine or anything like that, but we want to pray for both, not just for the, the, our physical needs, but also for the soul. He says, this is what I mean. The pestilence and plague of, of the soul is sin. Whenever God grants us abundant crops in the field, we see how these gifts affect us. Every day we indulge in drunkenness and idleness, followed by unchastity, adultery, cursing, swearing, murder, quarrels, and every other evil, so that it would have been far better if the fields had not been so productive. You see that? So sometimes when, when we're, so, um, we're so blessed, we're so, we, everything goes so well, it, har it, it can sometimes lead to harm for us, that we're secure, and so then we, then we fall into sin. We would then discover, and, and it's true what he says, right? It would have been better for us to not have any crop at all than for us to fall into sin. 
because of it. You know, if, if, if prosperity led to my downfall, it would have been better for me not to have the prosperity, yes? We then discover that what we asked for in the processions, God gives abundantly and blesses everything for the welfare of the body. But for the soul, all this is a fatal poison and results in the increase of abominable and horrible sin. For to be sated and idle is the greatest plague on earth, the source of all other plagues. No one heeds this pestilence. But we flee from the physical pestilence, pray and try all kinds of remedies. We willingly enter into this spiritual pestilence, flee from the physical pestilence only to fall into spiritual pestilence, desiring only to have enough earthly goods and to be free of physical pestilence so that we may feast even more on this pestilence and plague. And God, who now sees and recognizes the thoughts of our hearts and our scorn for this plague, closes his eyes and lets matters take their course, gives plentifully to us, blinds us and immerses us so deeply in our sins that sins thus becomes a habit and a custom, and we no longer regard it as sin. In our day, there is truly a need for daily processions accompanied by scourging of the body and directed against the visible rising deluge of all kinds of sin especially in this country, of so much gluttony, tippling, idleness, and what stems from these, in the hope that, that God might give us grace to use his gifts for our soul's salvation and the betterment of our life, and thus the fruits become the means for maintaining and increasing the health of our body and soul. However, God blinds us so that we do not heed this, but rather use his gifts for the passions of the body and for the soul's eternal damnation. In addition, he gives us a perverted mind, so that instead of improving matters, we aggravate them and ruin the processions and the day with, of prayer with our sin. Thus God is angry, and there is no one to stay his anger, while prayer and procession, which should disarm his wrath, serve only to increase it. May God help us all to come to our senses and to pray in true faith that he may avert his anger. Um, so, <laughs> this is kind of a surprise when I read that thing. I did not thought of it. Um, and, and so, yes, we do well. We do well to pray for prosperity. We do well to pray for good weather and bountiful harvest and, you know, success to the work of our hands. But realize, I mean, I mean you can see that, right? I think just culturally, broad scheme, do you, think, do you think that prosperity generally leads to piety? In, you know, society, in our culture, among people? Yeah? The more money you have, the better you are. Is that how it works? <laughs> not, not really. That doesn't mean the poorer we are, the better you are either. But, so, what do we, so when we pray, we pray not just for everything to go well. We do want things to go well, right? But we want him to give us what is good for both body and soul. Sometimes, what God deems to be good for our soul is to chasten us. Sometimes the cross is what God gives us for our good, right? Well, every time that the Lord gives us the cross, it is for our good. He knows what is for our good. And so we want to learn then to receive both, both good and bad and trusting that the Lord is still caring for us in all of that. So we do this, just we want to keep in mind that, that um, the bottom line, our bottom line, increasing of wealth or or abundance of harvest or success in our work is not the bottom line. Our salvation is. Right? And so that God would use these things for our good and not, not to allow us, you know, even that description where God's just, okay, I'll let them have success. 
And it's kind of a punishment to us. <laughs> it's allowing us to fall into ruin. Um, so, uh, all right, we might be able to finish this sheet today. We were on the bottom of the, the first side. We were talking about several of the false teachings that have had show themselves during this section of time. We talked about Montanism and Gnosticism, these kind of ideologies uh, that, especially Gnosticism, where it's de-emphasized or kind of shunning the physical and the body, right? Which also then affects every false teaching will eventually hit the doctrine of Jesus. It will affect who Jesus is. So think of Gnosticism. So this denigrating of the, of the flesh and the physical, right? Because then what do you have to conclude about Jesus? He couldn't have been true man because that's, he couldn't have taken a human flesh of bodily creation because that was bad. So that's where Docetism comes out, where Jesus only seemed to be a human. He, he, because he, they said he couldn't be because the body's bad, right? Marcionism, and again, all of these things have... I don't want to say that there's Gnosticism or Marcionism or Docetism is still being taught today, but that the ideas that led behind to these things are still around. You know, so Marcionism, you know, where he sees the God of the Old Testament as the mean God and the God of the New Testament as the nice God, Jesus is the nice God, and he says, well, that Old, that old Testament God, that's, that can't be God. That's not, that's not right. Um, and so what does he do? He just ignores the Old Testament and all the parts of the New Testament that seem to reflect the Old Testament God. Um, this, there's quite a lot of people who would like to you know, take a scissors to their Bible and cut out all the things that they say, well, I doubt God wouldn't do that. Um, I, don't, I don't like that God. <laughs> I don't like the way he talks. Um, which is essentially making setting yourself up as the God. I'm the judge, I'm the determiner of what God should or shouldn't do. So monarchianism then. Monarchianism emphasized the oneness of God. So do you see the, like the term monarch? Monarch would be like a king, there's one ruler, right? And so monarchianism in a world in the in the early church uh, where the the predominant kind of religious um, practice or, or or sentiment is polytheism, poly many gods. So most other religions are polytheistic. They have all kinds of gods. Think of like the, the, the Roman gods and, and so on. You know, you've got your god of the sun and your god of the, you know, all of these things. Um, and, and then on the other side of it, the, the other side of it is um, the Christians were also then accused of being polytheistic by, say, let's say, the Jews, who the, the Jewish religion, they say, is, is monotheistic. There is one God. That's a key tenet of, well, it's of Christianity too, right? But they say that the, the, the faith, our faith that God gives, that the God of the Old Testament gives, is, is monotheistic. There is only one God, right? But here come the Christians, and they say that Jesus is God. And so the accusation towards the Christians was that you aren't monotheistic. You don't believe in one God. You believe in multiple gods because you believe in God and then you believe in Jesus and then you even 
think of the Holy Spirit as God, that kind of thing. And so they, they were, the, the Christians were kind of being charged with being polytheistic too, as well as pagans did that too. They said, look, you guys can't even figure out who your God is. Who is it? Is it Jesus? Is it Yahweh? Right? And so this, you can understand then why someone would want to stress that there is only one God. So that's what monarchianism does, but it's not just emphasizing that there is only one God. It is false teaching will always impact, and, and false teaching will always uh, falsify the truth of what the Bible says about Jesus. So what's the what's the problem? Where where could this go wrong? Is that we end up saying, well. There's only one God, therefore Jesus can't really be God. Okay? So there's two different ways that that happens. The first one that's listed there, uh, under the name Proxius, taught that the Son of God was only one mode of the Father. So this would be called modalistic monarchianism. Uh, is that so that Jesus, he's not actually God, he's just... A, God switches modes, almost like, like putting on masks in a play. And he switches, and he's, he's only one at a time, and he switches characters. He puts on the costume of the Father in the Old Testament, and then he changes costumes, and then he puts on the costume of Jesus in the New Testament. And then in the early church after the Ascension, Jesus put, God puts on the costume of the Holy Spirit, or something like that. Uh, that's modalism. Uh, where, where he switches modes. But so Jesus isn't really, uh, it's not true God is just a mode of God. Uh, just a, a, a he, so that Jesus is like a, a, a mask, a costume that God puts on. And God is just one, but he, he wears different costumes. Okay? The other one is called, sometimes called dynamic modal or monarchianism. One God, but Jesus has kind of is given the power of God. That's what dynamic means. That dynamic means power. So that Jesus, so on the top of the next page, Paul of Samosata, the Bishop of Antioch, taught that God the Father adopted Jesus as his son. This is called adoptionism, where Jesus. God, you know, he's been given some of the power of God, and so God adopts him uh, and, and makes him kind of part of his part of his family. So he's not true and eternal God from the beginning. He's kind of brought into the fold, and he's like, gets, he gets, he's like the guy who gets the promotion. It's like Joseph who gets the, you know, placed very high in Egypt. He becomes, becomes like God. So, notice that he's, he's a bishop. He's the bishop of Antioch. So you had false teachers uh, in, within the church. These are not like outside the church coming and trying to break it down. Um, this this uh, comes, but as a result, um, well, one thing that, that results from this that isn't written here, but both Proxius and Paulus of they get excommunicated for teaching such things. That the church, the other churches, other pastors have to determine is this a true teaching or not? Um, and they determine no, he's teaching falsely and he's removed. Uh, the, both of them are excommunicated. And 
Um, so monarchianism was opposed by Tertullian, and so other, other writers in the church, like Tertullian, Origen, are writing kind of against these ideas. And, and out of that comes, so Tertullian's the first one, I think, to use the term uh, Trinity, and the, certainly the, the, the use of the phrase three persons, which always kind of confuses, it confuses catechism, because you said, you don't say persons, you say people. And we're not taught, we don't say God in three people, because people were thinking of human beings, right? There is only one God. The person refers to the, that which is unique to itself. So the, the, the personhood of the Son is that is, the Son is distinct from the Father, and the Son is distinct from the Holy Spirit, and that is his person. So the, the three persons of Tertullian is in order to articulate the truth and not go too far into, into some error. So, so like in, in, when there's people emphasizing the oneness of God, then comes these who say, no, God is three. But you would also want to go take a step too far, and there certainly are those who have taken the step too far and basically go into that there are three gods. Well, no, we can't say that. These are not three gods. They're not separate from one another. Uh, one god, three persons. Uh, and also the, the phrase eternal generation, eternally begotten of the Father, we say in the Nicene Creed. Eternally begotten of the Father. Begotten, that's generation. Um, that, that Jesus is the Son, but he is eternally the Son. Because the, the logical sort of thought is, if he's the Son, then the Son is always younger than the Father in our world, with fathers and sons, right? Sons come from fathers, and the fathers, they existed before the sons. So when we call Jesus the Son, doesn't that mean that he came after the Father? And, well, this, except the scripture doesn't say that. It does call him a son, and it does say that he is begotten of the Father. But when was Jesus begotten of the Father? We say that in the Creed too, begotten of the Father from all eternity. And also through man, yeah? That's in the Catechism. Yeah, another father from eternity, also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my life. These phrases are helpful to, to learn and remember. Questions on, on those false ideas that were floating around that some of these writers at this time were dealing with? What is called the apostolic rule of faith, then? Um, it, it uses this term rule. Now, when we use the term rule, we're thinking of like, don't run with scissors, no talking in class, right? Rule is a thing that you're to do or not to do, right? Um, think of this, this use as like a ruler, as a standard, so you have a ruler that tells you how long 12 inches is, right? Uh, and it, it serves as a, as a marker for what is, if, you know, if you were trying to do that and you're trying to see if something, if things are the right size, you check it by the ruler. When it comes to the teaching of the Christian faith, what the Christians um, needed something was to check all these teachings or to check certain writings, whether by a, a church teacher or someone claiming to be one of the apostles or something like that, you need to have something to check it on. You need, so you need a ruler, a rule. So that when it's, it talks about the apostolic rule of faith, was the thing that we can determine whether this is apostolic teaching or not, whether this is correct Bible teaching or it's false, right? And so what this serves, things like this, this is one example, Irenaeus's, 
Um, Tertullian writes things like this. Origen, uh, it's kind of like a creed. And I think it's sort of, we might call them early creeds, except that these are not like, say, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, where they're agreed upon and they're kind of uniform. They become uniform, at least in the case of the Apostles' Creed. And it becomes everyone confesses with the same words, and they are very careful about the particular words that we use, especially the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed, they're done with a letter. The particular letters uh, that confess the faith. Uh, here, we're talking about one here, in this case, it's written by Irenaeus, a teacher who writes, this is what the Christian faith is, so that someone could check it. Uh, alongside the scriptures and say, yep, this is, this is correct. So, let's, we'll read through this first. Irenaeus says, Now the church, although scattered over the whole civilized world to the end of the earth, received from the apostles and their disciples its faith in one God, the Father Almighty, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and in one Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was made flesh for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who through, uh, kind of just already sent a little bit like, oh, that sounds a little bit like one of our creeds, right? This is a, we're describing what is the Christian faith. Uh, and the Holy Spirit, who through the prophets proclaimed the dispensations of God, the comings, the birth of a virgin, the suffering, the resurrection from the dead, the bodily reception into the heavens of the beloved Christ Jesus our Lord, and his coming from the heavens in the glory of the Father to restore all things and to raise up all flesh, that is, the whole human race, so that every knee may bow of things in heaven and on earth and under the earth to Christ Jesus our Lord and God and Savior and King, according to the pleasure of the invisible Father, and every tongue may confess him, and that he may execute righteous judgment on all. The spiritual powers of wickedness and the angels who transgressed and fell into apostasy, and the godless and wicked and lawless and blasphemers among men, he will send into eternal fire. But to the righteous and holy, and those who have kept his commandments and have remained in his love, some from the beginning of life, and some since their repentance, he will by his grace give life incorrupt, and will clothe them with eternal life. So it's a brief confession of faith on the part here of, of Irenaeus. Uh, and, and you see this during this time, writers doing this, because they have to, they have to articulate the Christian faith in here. Summary, sometimes in contrast to a false teacher, and they have to write against, write against those, uh, so that others would not fall into, uh, into such error. We don't have a date. I, 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 I could look up to see if what what the scholars currently say on, say, the Apostles' Creed. Uh, the, the Nicene Creed comes later. We're not in that section yet. That's in 325 and 381. So we're only going up to 250 in this, in this chunk. Um, but the Apostles' Creed probably is around here, I, I think, uh, in some form or another, or something very much like it. It's just that we don't have, we don't have a, an author on the Apostles' Creed. We don't have where exactly did this this arrive. I'm sure I, if I were to find the books, I could find out a little bit more what, what the speculation or what evidence is there for. Where did this thing first, where did we first find this printed? Um, sometime I'll, I'll look that up. But that's how these things develop. Um, and in the early church, some of these emphases, they might not be, like, we, we stand as the beneficiaries of 2,000 years of church history. 
which includes a lot of wrangling, and we might not like wrangling in church, you know, like division, and we might not like, well, we certainly don't like false teaching. But what the, the history is of, you've got, you've got sinners who receive the word of God, some believe it and some don't. And some believe it and are fallen to temptation and they corrupt it, just as Jesus and the apostles prophesied would happen. Um, and so contending for the faith, as the apostles say, um, is, is the task. And as we do that, we've been able to, you know, that we have creeds. They didn't have the benefit of that. They couldn't just, when, when Paul of Samosata starts writing and saying that Jesus isn't really God, he was just adopted by God, they didn't have the Apostles' Creed that they could just recite to him and say, you're teaching wrong. <laughs> right? um, and, and, you know, the distinctions, all the distinctions, partly because of, of the past. And as, as time has gone on, some of those have become more, more subtle. And, and for us today, they seem very small. They might seem very small. Differences between churches, for example. And we look at them and say, and sometimes they are, they are smaller. Um, but I understand that we're beneficiaries of that same kind of, that same kind of thing that was going on where there was a false teaching and the, and the, and the Christians had to get together and say, is that, is that false or true? And the, they determined, no, it's, it's false. That means you can't stay and teach here anymore. And so then there's a split, right? Um, and that's not, it's not something that we relish or, or love. What we love is the true word of God. And we, we, what we love is that it gives comfort and that it builds and, and strengthens faith. And, and we believe what the scriptures say about the nature of false teaching, that it can erode that. So that you got to the Reformation, and that was it was it was a major mess, right? And there was not a lot of comfort being taught. And someone like Luther has to stand up at great risk, and, and you know, and he's he's excoriated in, in much of the, the religious world for dividing the church. Everything was as if everything was fine until Luther came and caused a mess and made a split before we were all happy being under the pope. Yeah? Um, and he's, he's, he's for, for doing that, for, for splintering everything and breaking it all. Um, but it's an effort to teach the true faith that comforts and sustains sinners uh, in the truth. And so, so <laughs> what you see them doing is, is really, you know, it, what, what we have continued to do since then. Um, but understand that back then they didn't have well, the, the benefit of the history. They haven't had as many, they hadn't had as many false teachers yet. And so they weren't able to kind of narrow down, okay, okay, that, yeah, that's an overstatement, that's an overstatement, that's an overstatement. You know, like the Nicene, or the Athanasian Creed, you know, and it says, not this, not this, not this, <laughs> because someone was saying that. And so they had to say, well, no, that's, that's you know, there are not three gods, or three lords, one Lord and one God, okay? So, when we read in the early church, we might not recognize, or we might not, they might not meet our, our standards, they might not match up, so let's say, uh, you know, Tertullian or something like that, one of these, one of these writers. Would he... Would he be able to sign on, let's say, to the Book of Concord, or even Luther's small catechism? 
they didn't have those things, right? So they, they didn't have that, um, and I don't know, you know, like, or maybe another way to say it. When I read someone early church father, will he say everything according to, you know, everything that, you know, every creed or confession that's been written since then? Probably not. Those controversies had never happened yet. And so he didn't, like, know the, the pitfalls, all of them. And so we might, we might see things that we would say, well, maybe we would say that better, and maybe this wasn't the greatest emphasis. Um, so that's the last section. These two quotes just kind of try to summarize this in early church teaching. Um, some trends or common things during this time. One of them is in the first quote. It says, because of the prevailing immorality and denial of human responsibility, early Christian teachers stressed the accountability of each man for his actions as well as for his salvation. Uh, so, we, we, would, we would say that's true. Man is accountable, right, for his actions, uh, but not his salvation, right? Uh, that salvation is one, one way Jesus, so we, 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 we wouldn't emphasize that, right? But where are they coming from? Because of the prevailing immorality. So, they're, they're living, and we can maybe understand this, they're living in a very wicked world, with people of all sort, you know, and, and like they're, they're, they're seeing this, this tragic immorality, um, and here they're Christians and they believe God's word, which gives the, the Ten Commandments and all of the, the moral teaching that's behind that, how a person should live. And they're living in a world where people don't live that way, which so are we, right? And, and so one of the emphasis was, of the church was, you should live this way. We can understand that, right? Um, and, and that, but then the denial of human responsibility, um, there, there was this, the idea kind of that the gods had everything planned out anyway, and that your, your fate didn't really matter, wasn't really in your hands. If you're going to be saved, it's because the gods decided you'd be saved or not. It was kind of an idea that, that floated around. And, and so then you can understand then why they might emphasize even that person is responsible for his, as well as for his salvation, that in contradiction to the, the idea that your salvation is kind of off in the stars somewhere, and, and it's determined by faith, right? Um, no, that they're, that they're, so they, they did emphasize human agency, what you should do. We would understand that that can go, that can go wrong, right? And, and it did, leading up to the Reformation, right? Where the emphasis was on what you should do in order to, maybe they might not have said, accomplish your salvation, but that was the effect, right? It was over-emphasis on what you should be doing. Um, and what that did, again, every false teaching, every false teaching takes a, a stab at the cross and, and the person and the work of Jesus. So a false teaching that over-emphasizes man's responsibility is going to take away from Christ because it's going to take away from the glory of Christ who wants to be our Savior. And not work, us not to be our own Savior and have to work out our own salvation. It takes away from the glory of Christ and what he wants to accomplish for us. Yeah? So that was one, one emphasis that you see. Writings from this time, you know, they, they seem to emphasize more what a person should be doing. 
than maybe what Jesus has done fully and freely for them. And we might say, that's kind of a deficiency, but we're, we don't... But how far they didn't have all the... What's that? How far does that go when you go way back in history? The churches have been very small, and then logistics very hard to... I mean, we're way back in time. Yeah, it's hard to put it into perspective of today because you wouldn't have been going in big cities and stuff. Maybe you got Rome and stuff on here. But. Yeah, there's. I mean, there there are larger cities, and then there are larger, you know, other other places, and people are scattered, and they don't have. It, it don't think of this as a, uh, you know, there's not like an organized network. No, and you got Paul in here somewhere. Yep. I mean, he he did a lot. Of, in his life. Mm -hmm. but. So, so the Roman Empire, because this is part of the Roman Empire, like they are connected more than they had been in previous centuries. You know, that the Roman Empire has, has created a peace that allows travel between cities, um, commerce, all of these things allow more contact between cities. But you're right, it's, it, it's a different world and they're more isolated. I mean, they didn't have, like, uh, wells or Missouri or stuff, Senate's or... No, no, they didn't. They, yeah, uh, and so, so, you know, for them to figure out whether they're teaching the same thing or not, is, is that was a challenge. Um, and the, you, what's interesting, though, is they do have contact with each other because what we have, and that's much of what we have left over, are letters that they write from each other, you know, from one city to another, like Paul writing to the Corinthians and to the Ephesians. And they kept the letters and they passed those on. And so the stuff does travel, or it does travel. Um, but yeah, you don't have, uh, yeah, don't think that we have like or organized synods or, or any. And even, even the Roman church at this point is not the. The church in Rome is the church in Rome. It's not until later that the, the Roman church becomes the whole church, you know, and considers itself the head of all the Western church. Uh, that, that's not here yet. So even though some of these men who are bishops of Rome, in the, in the city of Rome, they get, the Roman church today will call them the first or the fourth pope. They're just the pastor in Rome. <laughs> That's what they, that's how they understood their that's what they were, um, but the Roman Church because they believed that that authority came from one to the other that it went through the bishops of Rome even though Rome was not over anything else but Rome at this point right that that all comes later so it's kind of anachronistic for them to do that because they didn't like Peter didn't know he was the first pope. <laughs> He wasn't. I mean, he was just Peter the Apostle and, and other, others. We don't even know that Peter was actually a bishop in Rome, necessarily. We think that he was in Rome, but that's about it. The, the second uh, emphasis that, that we see during this time is an emphasis on the resurrection. Uh, so this is a quote from that, that history book that I've been working through. Responding to philosophies that assumed merely the immortality of the soul and argued the impossibility of a decayed corpse being restored to life. 
Christians stressed the resurrection of the body and produced many rational arguments to demonstrate the ability of God to perform this miracle. Um, so you just so in the in the face of whether that's agnosticism that denigrates the the, the body and, and the the physical, or just sort of naturalism that says that's just impossible. Bodies just don't come to life. The Christians, the resurrection of the body is a big deal. Um, and so they, they certainly emphasize that. And I think with both of these emphases, we're living, we're, the world we're living in emphasizes the contrary on both of them too. We live among a great, you know, um, prevailing immorality. <laughs> and I, I don't know about the denial of human responsibility, maybe, yeah, that people don't, they don't if, if sort of people think that, so either you're, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps or it doesn't really matter. You just, you're, you're, you're in fate's hands. Um, we, we live in that, and so we want to get the message right about that we are responsible for our actions, but not our salvation. That's a gift of God through Christ. Uh, and then with the resurrection of the body, I, I think we do live in a world that generally thinks that bodies don't rise from the dead. I mean, would you say that that's generally true? That, you know, the, or, or even if you think of an immortality of the soul, say, you know, this reincarnation or some other thing, like, well, I, I believe in heaven, but I don't, they actually don't believe that the body will rise, that it's some kind of spiritual resurrection or something like that. As sometimes you see segments of that, where you're like, well, toss, toss my body, I'm done with it. Um, The, the, you know, Job would argue against that, and uh, a lot of the apostles that the, the the body that God has given me, uh, He will recreate, remake, and, 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 and make new. But would we confess to that? And it's interesting. So, in the Apostles' Creed, the Apostles' Creed, we confess, I believe in the resurrection of the body. The Nicene Creed is just, it just, and we say the resurrect. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Um, but it's the earlier one that more emphasizes, uh, I believe, in the resurrection of the body. Just as Jesus rose in his body, so will we. Um, so in the, you know, in, in our world, I'd say these would be pretty good emphases too. <laughs> you know, that we would, on the one hand, with the first one, emphasize human responsibility, but not for our salvation. And that we can be okay going both ways. You are responsible for your actions, but Jesus, if you're going to be saved, that's, that's Jesus' work entirely. Um, and then I believe in the resurrection of the body. That changes everything that we do, isn't it? Or not changes necessarily from, but it, it, it God directs everything. Um, how I look at my life, how I look at my body now, and, and that um, I'm not despising that either. Right? Taking care of uh, what God is giving me, use it to serve my neighbor. Um, but then knowing that this isn't everything. I, 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 my, my life, uh, even in the body, is not just for this life. That Jesus will raise it. So then that, makes, that changes how or affects how I view looking ahead to my own death. I, I don't have to be terrified of it. Uh, because Jesus has conquered it. My life 
and my body are safe in Jesus' hands, even in the face of death. I, that, we've got a couple extra minutes, so we could generally take some questions or something like that. Uh, I, so this week I was interviewed for a podcast uh, by a pastor up in Alaska who does a, is called the Lutheran History Podcast. So he wanted to, he saw that I presented out in Washington a couple of weeks ago and was interested in, in the subjects that it kind of fit the work that he does. So he interviews people who does work uh, on various Lutheran history topics. So, so we, we were talking about that. And I, I, as, a, as we were going through it, really, one of the beautiful things of, of history is to discover the things that, you know, that haven't changed. You know? So, so much of it, you look back and you say, oh, that was so different back then. And it was, it was very different. But the things that were, that were generally, the things that were different, we can, you know, we can leave as different. They didn't have toilets. Well, I'd find leaving that in the past. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know that there's any virtue in not having indoor plumbing. I, I, I could be wrong. I could, the, the could, you know, there's, you, you lose some muscle mass when you don't have to carry the water into the house anymore. You don't, you li- now we have to go and, you know, we have to lift some weights in, the gi- in a gym, air-conditioned gym or something like that. If we do, now we don't have to do some other work. So maybe. But in general, there's stuff in the past we can leave in the past, right? It's different than it was, than it was now. But there are things that we, we look back and we say, well, there They've dealt with that before, and then, then I'm dealing with something today, and I, you know, I kind of, I, that's why I love reading it. Um, you know, older writings were like, oh, I recognize that. I recognize the things that you need to deal with. They're different, right? Um, they're different than, than what, what he's dealing with, but any of them, you know, and one of them that is across the board that everyone in the past has dealt with. Had to deal with death. They had to face that. And they, <laughs> away. they had, didn't have like medicines that we have and technology, but they, in some ways, that just sort of that, that hides it from us. You know, it hides the death from us because well, I could just take a pill and I won't die so soon. Um, and so it, it trains me a little bit to think that maybe I can beat this thing. I can, you know, we can, we can not die. Well, that's not, that's a lie. So, if, 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 if the idea that we're going to be able to conquer death apart from Jesus, that, that would be a lie of the devil that to, to get us to think that. Jesus conquered death. We think that we're going to come in and do it. Yeah. Um, so, that's, that's, that's fun and enjoyable to, to see that, to, to view that, and to, and to grow. Anything anyone wants to suggest for two minutes? Otherwise, we'll give the choir an extra minute. If Shall we sing Shepherd of Tender Youth? Let's do one, four, and five again. Um...